Welcome to Guru Live. I'm Rihanna Dillon. TV is obsessed with replenishing its audience, but how do you attract young people to your show against a multitude of digital distractions? Next, we hear from those trying to attract and retain not only this much sought-after audience, but also the talent who will become the content creators of tomorrow, who know their market and engage with content on their own terms. This is Sam Barcroft, CEO of Barcroft Media, Martha Ling, Social Media Manager for BBC Three, and Kirsty Hathaway, Head of Branded Content for Refinery29. The chair is David Flynn. So I'd first like to... Um ask you all, what kind of content defines uh, your organisation and, um, and why you think it works to attract millennials? Kirsty, with you first. Yeah. Um, so Refinery29 is a, a female-first platform, uh, very much dedicated to females. 70% of the audience is female, so we do have 30% male. Um, but our audience, we kind of talk about millennials very differently. We talk about being millennial-minded. So our age, our demographic is 18 to 42, but more kind of about a mindset and how somebody chooses to live their life rather than being typecast into an age bracket, which is good because I'm very much flittering on the edge of being a millennial. Um, so I can still include myself in it, which is quite nice. We're also very much traditional women's media companies and publishers very much dictate what women should be thinking, how women should dress, how women should look, and conforming to the stereotype of what beauty is. And it's quite interesting, if you Google women, and for Google images, the pictures that come up are your stereotypical, beautiful, blonde, big-breasted women. You Google refinery, 29 women, and very much diversity. You've got fat women, skinny women, all this different um, ethnicities, different ages, and that's very much how we see life. We're not this cookie-cutter uh, cookie woman. We are interested in many different things and have very many different interests, and we try and be inclusive at Refinery rather than dictating what beauty is or what you should be thinking and what you should be doing. So that's very much how we engage with our audience. Great. Right. And Sam? So, uh, yeah, Barcroft Media, we started as a uh, news organisation and uh, providing content to print and... Uh, uh, publishers and we've evolved really with, our, with the requirements of uh, the industries that we work for and the audiences so um, we kind of five years ago we were doing a lot of hard news politics, economics um, and uh, quite thoughtful documentaries and now we do a lot more skateboarding cats and um, you know uh, body image uh, soliloquies but um, the great thing about digital media is it allows you to see what people are thinking and, uh, and you can obviously see what's popular in real time. And that means you can craft your content towards that. So what we try to do is celebrate what we call the amazing side of life. So we find incredible stories that are entirely real about the global population and we share them as enthusiastic as we can and we try to put that content where our audience already are rather than ask, our audience, ask the audience to come to where we are. Martha, obviously BBC Three, most people will know, but what do you think sort of defines it going into this new era online? Um, I think with BBC Three it's always been about authenticity. Um, our kind of editorial pillars are always centred around new comedy, so finding that fresh new comedy talent uh, from all over the UK and also really hard-hitting, thought-provoking documentaries. So our kind of loose editorial pillars are make me think and make me laugh. And we try to make sure that everything we're producing, be it a short video for Facebook or, you know, an hour-long documentary, really does have purpose. 
So I think the thing that makes BBC Three interesting going into the online world is obviously we're moving into uh, a brave new space and we just need to make sure that we're, we're holding on to our heritage of being really distinctive um, but also uh, really diverse and making content that appeals to a really broad range of people because I don't think you can really pigeonhole millennials. I think it has to be uh, you know, something that speaks to lots of different types of people uh, rather than just one small section. What I'd quite like to talk about first is, is what content we think can work for young people in general and, and, and what your learnings are. I mean, obviously, these were promos, so by their nature, they're taking the most extreme and fast cut. But even though you're all three of you aiming in a slightly different space, um, it does feel like they're seeing those together, that certain things, certain themes start to come across. And I, I don't know whether, you know, uh, starting with you, Sam, whether you've um, experienced what kinds of content seems to, you know, really grab a younger audience? Is, there, is it just about getting great content or is there anything in particular that you think um, really goes through, you know, to that audience? So I think it's, uh, number one, the term millennials, I understand it, basically, allegedly, it's this group of people of a certain generation um, between, you know, early 80s, um, forwards that um, don't really consume in the same way as us old people do. Um, but I have gone on record before at slating it. And, and the reason for that is I just really think that my five-year-old boy likes a lot of the same stuff as my father does, um, or my mum. And I like a lot of the same stuff as my 13-year-old daughter. I do think that sometimes it's very helpful when, like us or other, you're selling to a brand to identify a real niche audience and say, we're gonna, we know what these people think and how they dress and what they love and where they go. But honestly, that is, there are lots of studies around that and it can be helpful. But I just think great stories and really compelling content works for most human beings. You know, we're, we like to think we're super complicated and different and everything else. But really, when you see something that moves you, that gives you what posh telly people like to call a visceral uh, piece of content, i.e. it makes you really jump or feel excited or feel sad or basically generate emotion, I think most people get affected by that. Um, so what we aim to do with our content is provoke emotion, really. And um, if you can get, if you can create something that um, has a combination of authenticity originality and that brings emotion, then you're often going to have something that's going to do well. Because essentially if you want reach, i.e. if you want to get to lots of people, you have to get people to share because that's the new way that we all distribute content. And so we develop content that has those three things at its heart, hopefully, in our language, which is factual, mini documentaries or news, because that's what we know how to do and that's what we do best. Um, and we try and filter through those things. And um, so we create quite a lot of content that does that. And actually then we take it from Facebook and Yahoo and YouTube all the way through to making TV shows out of it because essentially those same things matter through the whole spectrum of media, not just in uh, digital first. Um, and that's kind of how we set up, our, well, how our business has grown around us. Um, it's not something that is no great the theoretical kind of master plan. It's just watching the numbers, seeing what people say to us, and then following the path that emerged, really. Without exploding into a 
what on earth are we doing here, given that there's millennials in the title of our panel? Because you talked about millennial attitude or... You know, yeah, millennial-minded. What, what, what does that mean in, in terms of Refine Your Training now, in terms of the kind of content you're, that works? Well, I think, I think when we talk about millennial-minded, it's very much trying not to typecast. It's the way that the, a millennial is kind of, by definition very independent, doesn't see themselves as part of a collective, doesn't want to be spoken and typecasted in that way, and I think that's why millennial-minded very much um, goes further than just this particular mind, this particular age group, and it is very much a mindset. We don't want to be a cookie-cutter. We very much want to feel like we're empowered to make our own decisions, and I think that when it comes to content, you don't want to feel like you're t- fitting into kind of a, a particular genre. You know, mm. we can also, in Refinery, we, uh, we started off as a fashion fashion site and now we've kind of very much in numerous verticals with the fact that women aren't just interested in fashion and beauty anymore they're interested in technology they're interested in politics they're interested in current affairs and food and interiors and I think that's also really important when we come to creating content we don't necessarily just make something that sits among those verticals it can cross numerous different ones in terms of how we view our life we're very much 360 and not just kind of interested in one particular area but also I think there's two things for me when it comes to creating content. Is it, does it pass the so what test? It's very easy to come up with an idea and get carried away. T- taking a step back and being like, so what? Who's going to care? Is this going to resonate? Or am I just making something for the sake of making something? Because otherwise you're just basically like renting out the O2 and talking to yourself, which is a waste of money and a waste of everybody's time. And then the other thing is utility and service. <clears throat> I think I completely agree with everything you're saying. Aspiration and... Um, that's the best thing to have at the front of it, but we like to have utility falling out the back of it. What, how does it add to your life? How does it enhance your life? Is it a tip? Is it a skill? Is it something that you'll remember and resonate with you? And do you find that, because, you know, obviously, in a sense, part of the difference of this content is where it's being consumed, um, which possibly then means that your audience, by its very nature, is erring towards the younger side. Um, but it also uh, makes demands on the kind of form of content that you put together. And I'd be interested, because you know, all of you uh, have access to the kind of the data that shows, you know, in a very uh, sort of blunt way, whether something has worked with your audience or whether it really hasn't. Um, has that actually changed the way you're making the content, the pace of editing, the, you know, the way you're sort of putting together and producing the content that you make based on how it's received? Um, Definitely. I think even, you know, above and beyond the data, just speaking to people through social media. So we we like to be quite responsive on BBC3, and if someone tweets us a comment or a question, we'll always try and reply. And just taking those kind of bits of feedback on board, I think that's the purest form of developing what you're doing. Um, we kind of do a, a litmus test in our daily content meetings where we say, you know, if something's been commissioned, would you share it? Would you share it on your personal social media feeds? And if no one would, then like you say, there's absolutely no point in doing it. Um, we did something a little different last week with one of our biggest documentary shows, uh, Life and Death Row, where we carved it into 10-minute uh, episodes that were kind of fed out over the week with extra evidence and extra clips and, you know, just to try and experiment with a different way of storytelling. And people came back and said they didn't like it. And we have to listen to that. And it's, I think it's about not being afraid to try new things and be experiment, uh, experiment, 
but also if, some, if you get the mass majority of the audience coming back and saying, look, I love the show, I hate watching it in this way, you've got to listen to them and you've got to feed that back into your process for the next time around. Um, I think, yeah, the beauty of social media is that you can have one-on-one conversations with your audience and you can use that to influence everything you do going forward. An audience is quite an interesting thing in this area because um, back in the day when I was very much um, on the whole producing stuff for television, we were in a, a lovely situation where you would deliver your show and then it was the channel's responsibility to get the audience for you and, um, and if they didn't, if they, the audience came, it was because you'd had the most fantastic idea that was always going to be a hit. And if they didn't come, it was because the channel had put in that terrible slot um, and basically ruined your fantastic idea. So it was kind of brilliant in both ways. Sadly, those days are over. Um, I'm quite interested for all you guys, actually, as, as both content creators and distributors, you know, how do you um, try and build your audience and try and grab this sort of elusive younger audience who are, have got thousands of distractions? I don't know, we'll talk about Snapchat at some point, but Snapchat's kind of a big channel for us in terms of recruitment. You know, we have our audience, which in the States is it's at 25 million on the dot-com, and that's great, but, you know, we're looking at... You can continue to grow with your audience, but you're also having to try and look into how you recruit that younger generation, and Snapchat's a great vessel for that, <clears throat> and something that we got into very early. But also, we have our big strategy is go where she is, so you can't expect people to come to your site the whole time and to go in and you know, I would say something like 20% of our traffic goes, comes from putting in refinery29.com into URL but that's just not how audiences come to you anymore so creating content with different strategies for different channels and executing it thinking about what the audience is going to these different channels for and being very clever and creatively and strategically distributing and creating um, and Snapchat's completely different. We have a team of 10 dedicated to Snapchat that creating new episodes every day. And the same thing, we listen to data. So we launched Snapchat with um, a weekly series every day that was like a 10-minute se- um, kind of part of this series that we'd um, feed out over the week. It didn't work because it's not how people consume chat, Snapchat. And now we very much have weekly daily themes, which is all kind of around whether it's something that's kind of socially relevant, which is always really important with these channels. Social relevancy should be the undercurrent of most of your content. Um, so if it's Oscars, everything will be at the, about the Oscars that day. And thinking about it in a very different way that you would, uh, pushing out content in episodic formats. And just on the Snapchat thing, because this is a, a really interesting kind of area. And I think Refinery29 um, has the privileged position of being one of the channels on the Discover platform. For people who, who don't necessarily haven't necessarily got Snapchat or don't necessarily know about Discover. Explain, explain how that kind of works. So Discover, platf- uh, Discover Platform is something that Snapchat brought, Snapchat brought out last year um, and working with media owners to have a... It's basically like a, like a hub on Snapchat. So you can push out 10 new stories every day and as soon as you read them all, they disappear. And it, there's everything's in the vertical. So you, you kind of slide through it the way that you would a magazine and slide up and down the way that you would a magazine. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely kind of killing it for the millennial audience. So we have 2 million users a day on our Snapchat channel. So you can kind of get an idea of the scale, which still totally blows my mind. Like, where the hell are these people? Um, but, yeah, it's... it's and we, I speak to people every day in meetings. We're like, oh, we don't really look at your .com, but we love your Snapchat channel. Mm. And the way you can do animation, you can do film, you can be incredibly creative the way that you create content. 
um, long form, short form videos, photo shoots, animation, everything, um, illustration. And it kind of gives you a really rich, a rich kind of, it's all very snackable, obviously. It's kind of a social channel for that point of view. Um, running that, because obviously, um, the particular challenge of that is how you then bring people back day by day with daily content. And, you know, what do you have to do to make sure people return to your... Well, there's no way that you can target people mm. as such, but the fact that it disappears creates that urgency. So it's only available for 24 hours, after which you can never read it again. So that kind of urgency creates people to come back. And actually, our user comes back between three and four times a week, which is an extraordinary amount. <laughs> I actually think it's actually the way that Snapchat's built the channel that makes people mm. come back. And then when you create the content that resonates with them, that feels really interesting, and also is incredibly diverse across many different content pillars, that's a reason enough. And you know, you can use it on your commute. It's kind of not like a sitting down having to really find the time. It's an on-the-go platform, which I think really appeals to this millennial, millennial-minded generation. Yeah. Yeah. And Martha, the BBC obviously um, moving BBC Three online. The big challenge really was this audience question, which is, you know, when you're turn on the TV and the channel's there, mm. it's, it's an easy way to find the content. And yeah, you know, your challenge really has been to, uh, you know, with BBC Three in the online world, how do you keep bringing an audience there? How have you tried to deal with that? Um, it's been really interesting because I think uh, I had to learn really quickly what people use BBC Three for. And I think it got to a stage where people were so used to being able to flick onto it almost by accident sometimes. And there was a large chunk of people who would watch it late at night to watch Family Guy, like repeats, that was their sole interaction with BBC Three was that experience. So when we said that we were moving the channel online and we were changing a lot of the, the content and the things that we were producing, I think a lot of people were scared by it and didn't like it. And we had, you know, a big outpouring on social being like, why are you doing this? Why would you ever do this? And there's lots of reasons for why it happened. But I think the biggest thing for us now that we don't have that fixed linear structure is, you know, the conversation has to be 24 hours and it has to be an ongoing story. It can't just be, okay, all of our social activity is going to point towards something that's happening at 8pm on a Thursday. It has to be an ongoing uh, point of conversation. And particularly with things like thrillers. So we had 13 very recently, which was a big drama for us we had to be so conscious of spoilers. Mm. And that's something that we never had to think about in that way before because you've got to consider that everyone's watching at different times of the day. Some people might wait to the very end and then watch it all in one go. And it's, you know, teasing the story and trying to build that excitement around a storyline without ruining it for people. I think that's probably one of our biggest challenges. Um, I also think it's been really interesting in the way that we commission things now and the way that we kind of decide which stories we share um, we've definitely looked to YouTube talent now. Uh, they are the kind of new talent kind of basis for us. We've got a brilliant comedy coming up later this year, which came from a YouTube pilot called Hood Documentary, which has had like, over two million views on YouTube. And, you know, that's what's being commissioned now for BBC Three. It's people who've kind of proved their worth on social platforms uh, who are now being brought into this kind of bigger BBC platform, uh, which I think is really interesting. I think also with BBC Three, uh, they made a commitment that they would repeat all of the long-form shows on either BBC One or Two, so that if people aren't in that pattern of consuming things online, they can still watch it on TV if they want to. But I think because we're the first channel to do it within the, the BBC, 
it's been a bit of a learning curve and a bit of a um, education process just to reassure people that they can still have all the same content. They can just find it in lots of different places. That's quite an interesting... The challenge, in a way, is sort of... For the BBC in particular, is that kind of how BBC how the BBC does social media. I mean, social media in and of itself is kind of can bring lots of different voices in. And the BBC historically hasn't been the best place at dealing with those. How, how have you found it? Um, I think we're very lucky at BBC Three in that we're allowed to push the envelope probably more than any other part of the BBC. And we are trying to do things differently. Um, I know historically it's been quite difficult um, for because of all the the editorial policy and the, the kind of rules around the BBC. Even getting you know a Twitter Q and A mentioned on air was a real struggle for people. But because we're now an online entity, we have to live and breathe in the same way that people who are consuming our content do. So it would just feel completely unnatural for us to produce all this content that lives online but never mention the social platforms that they live on. It would yeah. just it would be ridiculous. So we're, we're having to kind of trailblaze a bit and break through those, those barriers that the BBC faces and do things differently. And I think it's, it's what's going to help it work for us is that, you know, we're, we're really focusing on being diverse, being innovative and being future-thinking uh, more than any other part of the BBC. So I think um, we're kind of rising to the challenge, hopefully. And Sam, your content... Is you know you talk about it being shareable? Can you actually create or plan for a viral sensation? Um, well, no, but you can try your best. <laughs> you can't guarantee it. And uh, when you sit down with brands um, who increasingly are commissioning much more of the content, professional content in this country, um, they want you to tell them that. Um, this great film that you've just made is going to get 10 million views, all of them British, all of them under 27. Um, uh, but you'd, be, you'd either be employing a lot of right-clickers in Vietnam or uh, you're basically lying. So what, what you can do is, what we do with our audience to try and encourage usage is, is um, to experiment a lot. You know, we've, on our channel run lots of different types of content. We've made long-form documentary, half-hour-long originals for our channel. We've also partnered with people like ITV, Channel 4, Sky, to play their shows on our channel, because interestingly, for those broadcasters, they want our audience, um, uh, which is kind of mental, really. But, um, but so, so we're always trying different things with our audience, and we're always listening to what they've got to say. Um, um, it's a great platform for trying something new. The other week, we just went, we haven't really got any films with any front-of-house talent, no on-screen talent. So Peter Wiles, who works with us, said, well, why, I, I auditioned for The Word in 1812. Why don't, why, don't we, why don't we do that? Why don't we just do an audition? So we took over the YouTube space in London and New York and we just got people in. And um, the best people were people that no telly company had ever heard of. You know, the worst people were people that were presenters that had been around the block 40 times, you know, and... and 
They so were all lovely. So what sort of talent were you actually looking for? In, well, in that, we were just... Basically, it's a funny thing, talent. You just know it when you see it. Mm. And, um, you know, we also run the Bear Grylls channel. You know, mm. we, we work with quite a lot of established talent in TV. Um, but I think the people that we got interested in were just the most interesting people. They were the people that had something about them. I mean, we, we ran our talent contest. Not many people watched it, but it was really helpful for us. And loads of feedback about who people like, why they like this person, why they didn't like this person. It was just a massive experiment. And um, one of the TV networks just paid for first look at that straight away when I mentioned it in a meeting because they really struggled to find any kind of yeah. new talent. And so... It would, it's a really interesting thing. I think what's great about these platforms are um, anybody can do it anywhere in the world unless you live in a repressive regime that doesn't let you on the certain parts of the internet. So um, we created our channels by accident. It was just somewhere to put our stuff and then all of a sudden it created an audience. And, and, and I think that I encourage everybody to do their own thing online. If you're a graphic artist, just put your graphics online. If you're a presenter, just blog all the time. Vlog, sorry. You know, but um, if you're a writer, just write. You know, it's the way to do it. And, um, and these platforms do give you mega reach all around the world. So we just try lots of different things. And when we... And the other thing is, not many people have ever heard of our channel, and nor do I care, because it's the content that actually moves people. It's not the channel name. I don't know how many people in the audience know which channel commissioned Breaking Bad. I mean, one. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Um, hey. but, but, you know, and you all guys that want to be in this, in, or are in this industry, right? So it's a, it's a small, you know, people go for brands these days. And so we're actually restructuring our whole thing around our audience by saying what we're going to do is develop serialised, well, verticals of different t- types of audience, but then everything we're going to do is going to be a series. And we're going to really put a lot of energy into what that series is called, what the poster is, what it's going to look like, because we really think that people care about content, they don't care about the channels in their audience. And is that because you were finding sort of your, you know, a one-off you'd put as much effort into and then you just have that one hit, as it were, and... and Well, I mean, the dogs that mm. you saw on there, the kind of slightly nasty drug dealer mm. dogs, they've been an absolute massive sensation for us. Mm. We've put three films online, and they've done over 100 million views between three films, and um, across all platforms. So we'd be mad not to turn that into series. Yeah. Now, it's not a very brand-friendly series, because, let's be honest, sponsoring... Pedigree uh, yeah, I can't see Geico Pet Insurance going for it, really. But um, I think, it, and, and we've pitched it around all the TV channels, and they've all been, this is incredible. The numbers are astonishing. No, thank you very much. Yeah. Because all the advertisers will run a mile. So, so it's really interesting. But, why, but what's great about these things is everybody in this room can be a channel controller, can say, yes, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do eight episodes. They're all going to go about 3 a.m. on a Tuesday, and uh, this is what the graphics are going to look like. Nobody until 10 years ago could do that unless they ran a TV channel, you know, and, and now I can ponce about pretending to be Ben Frow at Channel 5 or Charlotte mm-hmm. Moore at the BBC and have that level of uh, control, which is really exciting, I think. And because one of the interesting things about that is, is what you're saying about no longer being a, a channel, you know, no longer worrying about kind of people coming to your specific channel. And Kirsty, you said the same about Refinery Online, as it were, that actually it's, it's as much about getting out there on all the other platforms that are around now. And it, how do you cope with the new ones coming along? Anyway. I haven't heard of most of them. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you have to take a guess, don't you, and a bet. And we've, cho- we've decided not to engage with Snapchat yet, because, which is really kind of quite difficult because my kids 
going mental saying, Dad, I've got an 80, 80 snap chat streak. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> and um, and uh, it turns out that's the kind of nasty, clever thing they do to keep you using the app, which is building up a streak of communicating with someone every day. Um, Snapchat are brilliant at mind control. They're definitely in Tom Cruise's part of Snapchat, no doubt. <laughs> and, um, but, but basically, um, that was the first one where we said, as for our content, where we are, Snapchat doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and, and Twitter, we're rubbish at Twitter. Um, Martha just looks at our Twitter and sighs if she's ever even been there. You know, we just crap at it and we've got a <laughs> tiny audience. But for us, Facebook, mm-hmm. YouTube, um, are absolutely mega. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, uh, because, and then you find the ones that fit you and then you just mm-hmm. invest completely yeah. in those and, ones. Really. And obviously Facebook uh, is kind of ploughing into video in a big way. Uh, is that sort of, for all of you, part of the strategy? Yeah, well, I mean, we saw last year, we kind of really upping our video game, our film game, as it were. We saw nearly a 1,000% increase in video views last year across all our channels. And then Facebook is just that, just what we, you know, we see so much engagement, more so than we do on YouTube. Which would be, I mean, for any of these future channel controllers who are going to go out and start their channels just after this, inspired by ESAM, um, <laughs> what would be your advice in terms of the new or the new trends that they should be paying attention to, the places they should be thinking about for their content? God. Well, I think the brilliant thing about Refinery and BBC Three and other things, as well as what we do, is you can do anything you like because there's a lot of people out there who are really interested in mountain bike spokes on the wheels, right? So, like, you could have a channel just about bikes, wheel spokes, and it could be just so valuable and so interesting to people that really care about that. And so it's actually about what motivates you and what you get stuck into, I think, is the main thing. Um, And then you can uh, do whatever you like, but actually YouTube always trying to get us to narrow what we're trying to do into super specific niches because that's where you build a community that really care about that thing and knowledgeable about it. And then they know that you know what you're talking about. You know? Yeah, I think niches is the best way to go down. I mean, we kind of basically create our whole massive content on the back of identifying all the niches. And I think that's kind of finding a USP and what do you offer that's a bit different rather than going in and doing what lots of other people do. And obviously you can grow from that using data and insights, which, you know, the reason Refinery is so successful is off the back of data and insights. So key, you know, we're on digital. All you can do is learn and experiment, and that's the beauty of it. You're not at kind of a big... TV, TV station where you've created something, spent millions on it, totally flopped. What have you really learned? This is kind of, you can be fairly agile and you can learn on the spot and diversify. And I think having a punt at something, finding out your niche, finding out what you're interested in, going for it and, you know, learn as you go. No better way to learn than make, making mistakes. I'd like to talk um, now about sort of the economics of this, which will be more interesting than it sounds. Uh, any of you, BBC, three aside, because we're paying for you. <laughs> Is there any way of making money in this area? I think refinery are doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the way we approach it is... Um, is kind of small business running a cash and carry approach to it because we are a fairly small business, um, although we're not as small as we once were. So essentially what we try and do is create content that earns money for us in as many different ways as it can. So uh, going back to our dogs, um, that we, we still run a press agency, so we supply content to lots of other 
places as well. So you know, we make films for BBC Three. We supply content to BBC News. We we we, we work for lots of people like BuzzFeed and Mashable and people like that, giving their con- our content to them. You just don't see our name on it, mm. and essentially they repurpose it as their own. So that's licensing. So we make a, we create our content in order to license it to lots of other people, so they pay us for that usage. Then we make money from the adverts that run the annoying, you know, the annoying things along the bottom and those and skippable, like, things at the beginning and everything. We earn our wages from them. And don't skip them and he'll be happy. <laughs> I, I don't care whether you skip them or not. Uh, I just, um, but I think uh, they're making six-second ones, which mm. is brilliant news because um, uh, no one wants to sit through 30 seconds mm. to then watch a f- six-second vine. It's just bonkers. <laughs> but basically... Um, Essentially, then we get our advertising income from it. Then, if it's a really good thing, we'll go and um, pitch it as a TV show idea. Mm. So we'll go into Animal Planet and say, yeah, check out our dogs. Come on, make a 10-part series. And funny enough, a lot of the big networks like Vice and um, Machinima and all these people that have kind of won the internet in terms of content, content, (laughs) they basically um, are all at MIP. Uh, which is the big TV market and can trying to sell TV show ideas because it's mm. the only way really you can make big money out mm. of what we do at the moment. So uh, we've made happily a lot of TV shows that have um, been successful out the back of our content, mm. whether it's series or, or singles. But usually um, that helps us, that money we make up there helps to pay for the journalism down here. So, um, mm. so it's kind of a real hybrid model that basically breaks even for us. Um, but without the TV show money at the top, mm. feeding back into our teams of um, really enthusiastic producers that we pay the wages of all mm. around the world, we couldn't make our model work, mm. basically. And it's interesting to see, you know, even Vice, the sort of most millennial brand ever, is now going into TV channels probably for a similar reason. Kirsty, it's one of the tricky things about working with brands, and I know it's one of the things that Refinery29 do a lot of, is, of course, a millennial audience are kind of famously suspicious of inauthenticity. You know, they don't want to be sold to. How do you avoid that when, when you work with brands? Well, I think, first of all, brands come to us because they know that we have the audience, and I don't think it's very difficult to commercialise anything until you have the audience that brands want. Um, And, you know, content's very new still in the marketing mix for brands, but it's also something they know they need to hop onto. But you have the problem if you're dealing with marketers who have very much always been like, this is our message, we want to tell you about it. And content is very much audience first. What the audience interested in? What do we have to talk about? And how can we find the sweet spot between the two of them? So I think that's kind of the biggest part of the journey is taking the brands on that and finding things that are relevant to your audience. And brands do come to us because we know the audience and we know what people are interested in. Again, we use data and insights to be able to look at previous content, both editorial and branded content side, and find out you know, whatever it is the brand wants to talk about, whether it's a campaign, whether it's a product launch, whether they're just looking after brand love, uh, looking for brand love even. So it kind of, you have to base everything off strategy as well. What is the brand trying to achieve? How can we help give it to them? And, and we work a lot with influencers as well to help further with our message. And would you pick and choose the brands you work with in order to keep yeah. your brand... Um, yeah, so right. I think that's also really important who you do work with. I mean, obviously, we work across many verticals, but we're very into diversity and we're very into body diversity. So, say if, if a diet brand came to us wanting to talk to, to use us to talk to their audience, we wouldn't work with somebody like that because 
kind of goes against our ethos. And I think that's important as well. When you're looking at branded content, you're still creating content for your audience. You don't want to ever lose them by creating something that feels completely off-brand just for money. So it's that kind of, it's kind of a bit of a balancing act. But, you know, 80% of our revenue comes from branded content. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's working. You know, people are using ad blockers now. Nobody's interested in seeing, being dictated to by adverts. They kind of really want to see that something that resonates a lot more. And Have you got it wrong along the way at all? Yeah, I think everybody gets it wrong along the way. That's kind, mm. of, kind of part of it. And also, you know, you get things wrong when everything kind of takes the wrong channel due to the brands pushing back and you don't always get what you want. But yeah, I think branded content is still kind of on a, a bit of a journey and getting it right yeah. every time. I'd like to just ask you guys about the teams that you build. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about, the challenges of the economics of this means challenges of budget. And so to deliver the kind of content you are delivering day by day, I imagine the sort of structure of the teams has to be different to what we might be familiar with. So it's quite interesting to, to hear from, from each of you sort of how your teams are structured what kind of people you're, you're looking for in your companies? Our company evolved, has evolved over the last kind of 12 years, and, and so we've been a number of different things, and now we run five different divisions. But the way we work across is, is essentially we want to make great content that people get excited about and share. It's really simple, all the way from a 200-word uh, news story and a set of four photographs all the way up to a 10-part series. And um, we lucky enough we've kind of been able to by hook or crook that has evolved for us we've evolved a model um, internally which is based upon a newsroom model um, so I used to work at newspapers and newsrooms are great places uh, for creativity you're all in a room it's all quite noisy and essentially you've got a few people that kind of uh, decide what everybody's going to do but then what we've done is created teams of multi-talented producers so when I worked in newspapers, you had a graphics guy who just did graphics, mm. and you had a circulation person who just did circulation, and, and you have all these very um, kind of siloed roles. And now what we do is we run an apprenticeship scheme um, with Big Creative Education out of Walthamstow, um, which also adds to our in-workplace diversity, which is great. And we are really enthusiastic about growing people because... The way we do things, most other places don't do it that way. You know, if you're one of our producers, um, you have to come up with a list of lots of ideas for a weekly meeting, and you ha they have to be excellent ideas that are going to get in The Guardian, that are going to um, trend on, on Facebook or Twitter, that are really powerful. But you don't just have to come up with the idea. You then have to get the access to that establishment or person. You then have to write the story. You have to commission the video, uh, write the shooting scripts, when it gets in, write the edit script, um, uh, decide what you want to call it. You know, and so these people aged, well, anything really. We've got one apprentice who's 17 at the moment, or 18, um, all the way up to starters that are in their 40s. Everybody has to learn how to do all of it. And I think that's super empowering, because as a journalist myself, I loved it when I found a great story. And I didn't really want to give it away to somebody else. Mm. I didn't want to say, OK, come up with this great thing, hand it over and somebody else take all the glory. Um, I wanted to do it all myself. And so we've kind of built a three offices where we have teams of multi-talented producers who have to create this stuff. We then have a team of editors and post-producers who sit inside the same room in the middle, and all the producers work 
into there. And then we have a post facility where when things are finished, uh, they go into post to get um, finished off by a more senior team who kind of have been across the process. And we commission about 15 films a week, every week of the year. And um, we've had to build a factory, basically. Mm. Um, and then we have to build lots of outgoing revenue streams. So then we have another team that take all that content, schedule it into our channels, and then go out and sell it, um, essentially, to make it all make sense. And then on the side, we have a development team who come in and steal the best stuff, uh, pull it out of the loop and pitch it for TV shows, develop it into long-form series. So we just got... Um, a big series with MTV in the States, which was based on three stories that we'd made through the year that had been plucked out and then put together by a development producer into a, into a thing, which was really interesting because I think now the top TV channels want very authentic, uh, super gritty content in their factual. And so it, it's a complicated mix what we do, but essentially we grow people uh, rather than bring people in from outside. We have to pay them much less money. They love it because they're given autonomy and the, a chance of ultimate success. And, and what um, would their backgrounds be before they come to you? God, everything and anything. We've had gang members. We've had um, artists. We've had. To be fair, uh, if you're running a gang, that's like different lines of distribution. <laughs> that's like a whole. It's the true. operation is quite a challenge. So yeah, well, awesome. Uh, I think what, what we get is very enthusiastic people who understand that in anything you do in life, you have to work very, very hard consistently for a long time if you want to be a big success. And so we got a lot of very enthusiastic people who are on a mission who want to do really well. And, um, and um, we're not, I don't really care where people are from, what they look like or what they can do. If they come into our place and they work really hard and they have open minds and are willing to leave it all on the pitch every week, then they're going to be a success. So... Apprentice schemes have been amazing for us, post pre-graduate pre and postgraduate, and most of our good people uh, have come in like that. And then we augment it by stealing people from people like ITV and Avalon and others at the top to yeah. help um, with the experience that then aids those people and guides them. But essentially, um, we you cannot pay tele wages to big teams of people. Um, mm. In, in, a, in a new world environment very easily until you get mega funding if that ever happens but yeah. for a long time you have to you have to do it like that and how about you Martha very different structure yeah. now with BBC3 uh, very different and I think uh, we're still building our team really I think we've still got a few gaps that need filling um, so if anyone's looking to keep an eye on the BBC career site because we, we seem to be recruiting all the time at the moment uh, the team that we do have uh, in-house who are part of the kind of new BBC Three, um, all very young. Uh, a lot have come through the BBC uh, apprentice apprenticeship scheme um, or have been ex-work experience, that kind of thing. So there's a real uh, push behind kind of growing from within at the BBC. I think um, we're looking for all different types of people. Um, I'm from a brand background, so I was completely new to telly uh, when I joined last year. And I think, you know, now that we're doing something completely different, we're not just picking from traditional TV backgrounds. So we're looking for kind of multi-skilled people, particularly on social. I think to be a, a social media person of any kind, you need to be good at a bit of everything. 
because every single day is different. And I know that's a bit of a cliche, mm. but we'll, we'll literally, you know, one day send someone down to the set of people just doing nothing. The next day they'll be doing, you know, a report on uh, engagement rate for the past week. Mm. Um, so it's such a varied role and it, it kind of straddles content, marketing, analytics, audiences, so many different parts of the BBC that it's a really exciting team to be a part of, I think. I have to ask the rest of my team about that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're, we're developing. We've got an in-house content team, which is quite different to other parts of the BBC. And we've got um, a, a more traditional uh, extra part to it. So we've got schedulers still, and we still have um, development teams, and we have in-house producers. So we're, we're a bit of a hybrid between, you know, what Sam's described and um, probably what Primary 29 is, in that we've got editorial content production all in one space mm. but still still looking for people Percy how about you guys um, Refinery29 in the States is a bit of a, a beautiful beast there's 400 people um, spanning across many different departments and the film department itself is nearly 100 people or will be 100 people in the next few months so it's, it's pretty big and within that there's directors, producers, script writers you name it, it's, it's there um, in the UK, we're a startup, so we launched in November, and there are 15 of us so far. And very much when you're looking at startups compared to joining these bigger companies, is we're looking for what you call slashes. So you can do this, right, slash this, yeah. slash this, um, jack of all trades, master of none, which is pretty much my life. Um, so that's it. It's kind of for me, it's like a kind of a passion. So being passionate about digital, watching all the different pieces of content, having a solid understanding of it, having a strategic mind and a creative mind, which is not necessarily always the easiest thing to come by, but being able to, you know, for, especially in the branded content side, being able to read a brief, think about strategically and then execute it creatively. I see everything through to getting the brief in, coming up with a creative idea, pitching it in, dealing with clients, and then actually creating it as well. So it's all the way through. So it's kind of from that point really amazing and challenging and all different parts, using parts, different parts of your brain. So it'd be someone who is really, at any startup, I think, if you're looking to join across the board any startup is it's a really great opportunity to be able to go in and learn lots of different things and if you want to specialise then go and specialise from there rather than specialising and then looking to kind of go back out and do a kind of a more varied role. So skills wise you almost need to have as wide a skill set as possible? Yeah well I think what's, I think when it look, looking at kind of um, CVs that come in or skill sets you can take one thing that someone's done and you can see that that can be built upon as well so it's having the passion to be able to develop the rest of it rather than kind of coming in with a wide skill set. But, I mean, I think with anything, when you're looking at specialising, as boring as it is, doing as much work experience across different areas is completely and utterly invaluable because, I mean, that's what I did. Well, that's what I've done for my career, rather. Really, it's more like diversification. And I think you can be aware that, you know, I started as a fashion assistant at GQ and became a fashion editor and then launched digital platforms, then I went to a creative agency. You can completely continue to diversify your career and don't feel like you go into one particular thing and then you're stuck in it, because as the digital world evolves, so can you. And it's, that's what being in digital is really great for, I think. I'll just, just say, I do think it's a brilliant time for getting into the creative industries at the moment, because as a sector in our economy, generally, it's absolutely on fire, you know, especially around export. And so... Um, that, that does mean there are new opportunities, especially in the southeast, but also Manchester as well, with the new uh, media city that's up there. And 
um, even Cardiff and Swansea are now coming up as well. So I do think that Bristol doing great. So it's a great time because people are thinking much more open-mindedly. There's a lot of change going on. There's a lot of real challenge in the old media companies, but they're all hiring because they're desperate to dig themselves out of it. And um, at the same time, there's a lot of new companies that overnight can go from... No- nobody had heard of Snapchat three years ago, even my kids because it didn't exist really and so um, so everything can change really quickly and what they need more than anything are uh, positive people to drive that change and so I do think that um, across all spaces um, it's a great time and I'd encourage everybody to be really enthusiastic about it and reach out to people a lot because I think if you're willing to put the energy in and, and go and see a lot of people you'll absolutely be fine which I can't say I've ever thought before in the industries I've yeah. been in in the last 15 or 20 years so I do think it's a good time. So now time to demonstrate your enthusiasm um, because we've come to chance to ask these guys some questions. Um, Kirsty, you used the word snackable, and, uh, and uh, Sam, you were talking sort of quite eye-rollingly about sort of soliloquies about body image. Because you're working with sort of 140 characters or really short video, isn't the danger that everything's very reductive, everything's regurgitated, you're saying the same things, you're preaching to the converted. So do you see it as a battle against playing stupid, or do you just kind of roll with that? How, how do you battle that? Well, I think, I think personally I've always felt the ability to tell a short story in, in a succinct way is actually when you get to the epitome of what creativity. You know, I don't think... I, I think that um, short and sweet is beautiful, personally, and I think that when working in telly, you're always trying to reduce everything down to its core because that's the easiest way that... To, the amount of films I've sat in just puzzled, you know, like, maybe it's just me. But I, I think um, I, find, I find it uh, really fun to try and get things down to a sort of form. And, and, and so maybe that's why we've done well in short form. But not really. I mean, if you make a BBC Hour, as we did, we did um, Young Trans and Looking for Love for BBC Three a few, week, a few months back, you know, that was something we filmed over four years, you know, and, um, and that was... 58 minutes long um, without any stops. It's hard to fill a BBC hour um, with proper emerging storylines and narratives. So we're lucky enough in our business that we can go from one tweet all the way up to big series that are hard to fill with lots of content. But I do think it, content has changed and, and it is very important to keep people buzzing along. If you watch a David Attenborough uh, Life on Earth, the first version... It's rubbish. I mean, like, you are, you're just there staring at the thing, thinking he's talking for 15 minutes about mm. one kind of, like, spider, and the spider's not fighting mm. anyone, and it hasn't got a name. <laughs> it's not Edwin the spider, it's just some Latin name, and it's just really difficult. So I think it, we have evolved to simplify things, but I think most of the time that's a great challenge and, and has big outcomes rather than being... Um, I don't think we dumb down anything deliberately to patronise our audience. I think we try and simplify it so it's as enjoyable and absorbable as possible at our place, anyway. But is there a risk in, um, you know, in content, in trying to make video content in particular that, that grabs an audience and being judged and, you know, you're kind of economically judged by the, the amount of audience you get in? Is there a risk that video will inevitably head down the sort of clickbait route that text articles did a while ago. 
No, I don't think so because I mean we we we're in the top two hundred ever views YouTube channels, and um, we yes we have amazing titles, but then we pay them all off in the films because actually we find amazing stories. So clickbait for me is stuff that you click on because the store because it sounds too good to be true or incredible, and then isn't you know. Yeah. So, uh, but I think what we try and do is find incredible headlines and then back them up with really interesting stories that actually are exactly what the headline is. That's why we've got a lot of subscribers and a lot of viewers, is because we don't turn people over. We do things really simply. And pers- bless you. And personally, I think it's really important to be straight as anything, because as soon as people think you're taking them for a ride, why are they ever going to click on you ever again? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I, just, I wouldn't. I think that's so true. I think this audience, more than anywhere, anyone else, can smell bullshit a mile away. And if you do anything that feels contrived or anything that feels like you're trying to infiltrate a world that you have no stake in, people see through it immediately. And you, it does, it's immediately damaging, I think, for anything you want to do in future. So it's finding the right people to tell those stories as well. I think it's finding you know, authentic contributors, authentic talent to actually take people on that journey because as soon as you put someone who has no con- connection to that world particularly in online communities you'll get torn to pieces and create their own kind of thing but say for example when big brother first come out years and years ago it was a really interesting human experiment and now it's an, a kind of an eye roll kind of thing and with anybody being able to do anything how do you kind of protect and grow the industry that's going on now on the internet without the content becoming diluted because anybody can do it. I think it's quite interesting because I, I, I agree and it's something that you alluded to earlier where people think they need to be on every channel and creating lots of content all the time going on every channel. But I, I think quality over quantity is something that we're now getting to is more of a trend. I don't know if you guys agree, but I think when these... All of a sudden, everybody had to be on social, so everybody was on social all the time. And our algorithms have changed so much that you know you can create all the stuff you want to create, but you can't get everybody to see it, so then it becomes pointless. And I think that so the industry is kind of dictating to us a little bit that quality is more important. And also, I think what's quite interesting is we're kind of the Netflix generation as well, where when it comes to content, people binge-watch now. And so there's the, co- the quality of creating less and more that people can consume in one sitting rather than tons of stuff all over the shop that gets quite distracting. And I think that's quite a lot of brands and media owners are really starting to mimic that kind of way of consuming. I totally agree. I mean, if you read broadcast, um, I think everybody wants to be in an industry needs to read a lot about it and just understand what's going on because it, it's very important. Um, I would say um, you would have seen that people say Factual is in crisis, you know, um, and they will say the only good thing that's happened happened in Factual in recent years is the Great British Bake Off. Um, is it really? And that's because drama's taken a step up. You know, I remember ten years ago, drama was in crisis, and Channel Four commissioned one drama in two years. You know, and so essentially everything moves. But drama took a big step up with the Netflix generation, box set generation, and you could say. Um, Downton Abbey uh, from ITV that moved everything back towards drama and I was sitting in a meeting this week I had a real moment where my brain switched on and I thought do you know what we're going to have to do in factual we're going to have to find out what the Netflix of factual is for TV here because people the the bars just moved you know and and I think 
The great thing about YouTube is there's a million videos an hour uploaded to YouTube. Right? 400 hours of content every minute of the day is uploaded to YouTube, but you see hardly any of it because actually the computer decides what you see and what you don't see. And essentially, it will always push towards... Uh, the algorithms always push you towards what other people like and, and, and are engaging with. And so quality can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. For me, it's one thing. For everybody else, it'll be something different. But, but basically, the, the computers will push you towards what other people like. And, um, and I think for that reason, whether it's quality of journalism, authentic, authenticity of that moment that someone's caught on their mobile phone, whether it's a Hollywood movie, for me, quality means just what I like, you know, and it and, um, doesn't necessarily mean it has to be shot by a uh, BAFTA-winning cinematographer. You know, it could be something on a phone. Um, it doesn't matter to me. It's if I connect with that message, really. Hi, Al. Um, I was just wondering, I'm sorry, if you could share, share with us the most successful viral thing you had so we can learn something from it. That makes sense. So if you could remember the, you know, the most successful story or the thing that was most appealing to the audience. Yeah, I mean, like, I, we've had a few. I mean, we've probably got about 20 or 30, 30 videos that have done more than 20 million views on YouTube. And they really range, totally range across inspiring stories about you know, we had an amazing story about a mother and a son who both had a genetic disorder, which means they didn't have any limbs, but they still uh, managed to have a very fulfilling and um, happy life together. Um, we've, one of the biggest things we ever did was an amazing video that a tourist shot in um, Kruger National Park, which was a lion and a buffalo having a fight where the buffalo beat up the lion, which was really astonishing and had a lot of interesting science behind it. And that's the way we deal with that stuff, is we add some take-home, or you know, a tip or a piece of useful information where we'll take a video like that that's shot by a tourist, we'll verify that it's real, and then we'll explain why it actually happened on the video, which then gives it much more, uh, much more purpose, really. Um, but it, it's... The real interesting thing for us is it's just about finding great stories. And, and they can be anything from um, a moment caught on a mobile phone through to a mini-documentary that's done really well. Um, and I can't... You're right, you can't predict which one. We had an amazing story about some... Um, uh, conjoined twins in China that got separated recently and I was sat in the office thinking this is just beautiful it's been shot amazing it's so emotional the story's got twists and turns it's incredible it didn't do hardly any views at all so you just can never really work it out uh, unfortunately should have had some cute kittens in there <laughs> <laughs> is there a way to direct traffic to an, a YouTube video I mean you saying that a lot of it's dependent on the computer choosing which video is there a way that you can direct and get more viewers? There are lots of Is ways. That... <laughs> <laughs> um, not all of them particularly moral. Uh, <laughs> Tag it, Kim Kardashian. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, without, yeah, getting I mean, obviously now. you use your other channels. Like, I think having a good strategy across all your owned and operated channels to be able to drive traffic to where you want to go. And obviously if you've built your audiences throughout them and kind of working with syndication partners. I mean, there's quite a lot of different ways that we kind of look at it um, strategically to kind of push out. Uh, and obviously you can put, I mean, there's obviously putting money behind everything as well, which, let's face it, it's kind of what everybody has to do now. Otherwise, everything on Facebook itself is hidden, if you're a brand anyway. Yeah. I mean, we, we, spend, we basically try and work the natural algorithms because we haven't got people's money to... Uh, 
encourage sponsored viewing. So essentially we work very hard on our keywords and that's something I'd encourage everybody to do. You have to have a killer thumbnail. So the picture has to be brilliant in the thumbnail. So when people see it, they click on it. We work super hard on the first four words of our headlines because they're the ones that everybody sees no matter how small the screen is. And so we, I suppose, do it by um, combination of simple stuff like that and making sure that um, when you read through your description, it's got all the searchability in there, you know, all the words that someone might use to get there. And because we're really, we, we haven't really found the right way of doing it in other, any other way, so we just use the stuff that Facebook and YouTube and everybody encourage you to do. But you can download the YouTube playbook, which is really helpful. So if you are producing content, um, there's lots of resource there. And I'd encourage everybody anyway to just try and find a way to go into the YouTube spaces um, in London or anywhere else uh, because they've got just tens of millions of pounds worth of great equipment and loads of people that will help you create your films and edit them and, and can help you with distribution. So if you get some subs, they'll give you loads of support, basically. That's something I'd like to say. I think that's a really good question because I do think having thinking about distribution before you go into creation is really important because mm. you don't want to just create something and then get no views. It's disheartening, if nothing else. But always think about how you're going to get the message out there through all the different tactical things that you can. One other thing that we do is um, we found that quite often there's a bit of a synergy between talent who are really big on YouTube and Twitter. So if we have something with, uh, you know, that contains some YouTube talent in there, we'll then go find the big kind of Twitter influ influencers who might be up for sharing the video. So using influencers cross-platform has been really useful for us um, because YouTubers themselves are quite insular, I think, on that platform. But if you can find people on other networks who will embed the video, syndication is a really great way of getting your video out there. I've got to say, I feel I've learned load in this session, and I'm hoping everyone else has. It's been really fantastic, um, and thanks for sharing all your knowledge and workings. We really appreciate it. Round of applause for the panel. Thanks to Sam, Martha and Kirsty for sharing their insights and to you for listening. If you're interested in how this can be applied to film as well as television, hear more from this panel from Guru Live Partners Film London, featuring filmmakers and VOD platforms. Find out more at filmlondon.org.uk.